Welcome to Global IQ with The Economist. Today we'll be discussing the international financial crisis and the road from ruin with Matthew Bishop, chief business writer, American business editor, and New York bureau chief for The Economist, and co-author with Michael Green of The Road from Ruin, How to Revive Capitalism and Put America Back on Top. I'm Jim Falk, president of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, and we are broadcasting live from Dallas this afternoon. Joining us today are World Affairs Council members from Texas, Washington, D.C., Kansas, Alaska, Pennsylvania, and many other states. Global IQ is another benefit provided by your World Affairs Council. We also welcome clients of our sponsors, Texas Capital Bank and Club Corps, and for the first time, members of the Economic Club of Minnesota. Remember that you may ask questions throughout the broadcast, so please send them to us through the online form located in your virtual auditorium. Global IQ is sponsored by Texas Capital Bank, a Texas-based bank for businesses that think and act globally, and Club Corps, the world's leader in private clubs. For more information on these companies, visit TexasCapitalBank.com or ClubCorps.com. This program would also not be possible without the willingness of journalists from The Economist to participate and lend their expertise. Keep an eye out for an ad featuring Global IQ in The Economist magazine. Prior to authoring The Road from Ruin, Matthew co-wrote Philanthrocapitalism and a number of economists' special reports, including The Business of Giving, Kings of Capitalism, and Capitalism and Its Troubles. Before joining The Economist, he was on the faculty of the London Business School. Matthew joins us today from The Economist offices in New York. Welcome. Great to be with you. Well, we certainly appreciate it. Well, to get started, today's Wall Street Journal carried the headline, Euro Drops as Investors Think Again on Bailout. And indeed, the euro is trading, uh, oh, I guess about a half an hour ago at an 18-month low. And some are betting that the dollar and euro may even reach parity. Coupled with this is ongoing volatility in the U.S. stock market. It's down uh, about 200 points earlier today. And there continues to be speculation that the euro will be even under more pressure. And on top of that, it appears that the U.S. Congress is inching closer to approving a financial reform bill, which some observers feel is, is ill-conceived. In, in Road from Ruin, you do a, a really a wonderful job of uh, focusing on, on history and tying it into the current uh, Great Recession. You place the subprime mortgage debacle in a historical context with other economic bubbles such as tulip mania, which occurred in the 17th century, which you describe, I believe, as the first bubble. Matthew, would you uh, describe this and, and help us understand as the Great Recession and what is going on in Greece now, how it ranks in severity and in context with with other, as, as, as my banker likes to call, downdrafts? Yeah, I mean, this um, is evidence of the fact that this crisis still has a long way to go before it is over. You know, there's a tendency at the moment, I think, to feel that uh, because economic growth has returned a bit in America, that maybe we turn the corner and that we can uh, get back to business as usual. But the message of the road from ruin is that uh, this crisis is a deep crisis judged by the long view of history. It is a moment where we need to do some real soul-searching, some real hard thinking, and to make some real hard choices to reform capitalism to make it work better. Um, and you know, I think whether it be the problems in Greece and the European Union or uh, what's going on in Washington with bank reform at the moment, or indeed a whole raft of other issues that are very uh, important that need to be addressed. You know, we do need to um, think hard thoughts. And in the book, we set out an agenda for change, and uh, but we also expressed the worry that uh, you know politics and the fact that there's so little um, you know popular support for doing hard things in the political process at the moment is that this may actually mean that we don't do the reforms that we need to do, and that we end up. Uh, you know, this, this being a very, very long and deep and unpleasant crisis. And, and you say, in fact, in the book, you, you say that America is at a crossroads. Um, what are some of the, the steps that you think that should be addressed in the United States? Well, I think you start, you have to start by understanding what went wrong. And I think, you know, we've all become familiar with the idea that it was a lot of toxic assets, you know, subprime mortgages that weren't worth anything that people thought they were worth a lot of stuff on bank balance sheets that turn out to be rubbish. So I think it's not, it's not just about toxic assets, it's about what we call toxic ideas. And there was a whole sort of consensus view as to how capitalism worked, what capitalism was, 
um, and it was very much let the markets decide everything, uh, government bad, markets good, uh, and that, you know, basically we can trust the banks to uh, manage the system smoothly. And I think all those ideas you know, had become very deeply embedded in our system from you know, how people like Alan Greenspan ran the central bank, the, the Federal Reserve, to how all of us, as we looked at the stock market or our, our house price, how we reacted to that. We, we took the fact that our house price was getting higher as evidence that our house was worth fundamentally more than it was before, whereas, in fact, there was a bubble going on, and that was a temporary spike in value. The same with share prices. Many share prices went up uh, for reasons that were very short-term and didn't really reflect fundamental prospects for profit growth in those companies. So, you know, I think we need to recognize that we need new ideas about capitalism, better ideas about how capitalism should be regulated, but also better ideas about how capitalism can operate in a more long-term uh, sustainable, wealth-creating way rather than this sort of short-term uh, philosophy that, as we write about in the book, was captured by this phrase on Wall Street uh, during the bubble years of IPG, YPG, I'll be gone, you'll be gone, which kind of was used to justify doing deals that people knew were terrible deals but played a big commission. So they'd take the commission and know they'd be in a different job by the time anyone figured out what a terrible deal had been done. We've got to get away from that. Take your bonus and run. Yeah. <laughs> And, and you, that's one of the fundamental flaws. What are some of the other flaws that, that you know have recently been unveiled, say, with in, in capitalism with, in the United States or, or what we're experiencing right now well, in some know, of the I other think, countries? I think that part, part of the problem has been that for various reasons that made quite a lot of sense, uh, during the 80s, 90s, and the first part of this century, the idea, you could express the idea that... Um, Government should stay out of the market, um, and there would be, and that would be a good thing, and that would actually seem to be supported by the evidence. So you had, you know, the Reagan Thatcher years where there was a lot of deregulation, and then deregulation continued through the 90s. You had the collapse of communism, which reinforced the idea that capitalism, in a very simplistic form, was, you know, going to deliver all the goods. And I think people stopped asking questions about how do you actually get the right regulation. Whereas history suggests that capitalism works best when um, there is also, as well as the entrepreneurial spirit and the creativity that we know and love in America, that there's also well-designed, properly enforced regulation. And it's absolutely clear that the people who were in charge of regulating the economy uh, were either incompetent, corrupt, or asleep at the switch. Um, and you know, I think there's a huge challenge. I mean, the SEC was supposed to be looking out making sure that firms like Lehman Brothers were properly managing their risks, and the SEC didn't do that. Um, you know, Alan Greenspan, when he was running the Federal Reserve, should have uh, raised interest rates and done other things to take some of the air out of the bubbles that were forming. Instead, he seemed to, every time the opportunity arose, he seemed to pump more air into the bubble. You know, they, they talk about how the job of the Federal Reserve chairman is supposed to be to, to take away the punch bowl when the party gets really lively, and in fact, he was bringing in new and better alcohol to sort of stimulate the, the booziness and no wonder the economy got drunk. Um, so there's that problem. How do we get the right regulation? And then another challenge, I think, is, is how do we get our institutional investors, you know, the mutual funds, the pension funds, who are supposed to be investing for our retirement, you know, make sure we have a good pension and can live a good life when we retire. But these, people, these institutions ran themselves as very short-term orientated companies. They paid bonuses to their managers depending on how they uh, performed in one year when they should have been rewarding them on how they performed over a 5 or 10 or 20 year horizon. And as a result, a lot of these institutional pension funds and mutual funds who should have been forcing companies to look at their corporate governance, look at who, whether they had a board that was doing the right job, uh, making sure that their strategies weren't too risky that those companies, uh, that none of those investors took any interest in, in that kind of uh, question. Instead, they just said, raise your share price, get your profits up, without any uh, real consideration of whether what was happening was sustainable or involved taking the right amount of risk. So how do we change how those uh, institutional investors operate? And, and my view is that that may require some legal changes in, how, in what it means to be a good fiduciary. I mean, there, there are fiduciary responsibilities, legal responsibilities that... Uh, institutional investors have when they manage the money for the public. And I think that 
that should require a, uh, should be redefined to make sure that it encourages responsible long-term behaviour rather than uh, excessive short-term behaviour. Yeah, we'll get into that in considerable more detail in a little bit because I think an interesting part of your book is how you talk somewhat about the ethics of business and um, even a Hippocratic oath that, in a sense, that business schools might might adopt. I want to remind our listeners too that they may order a copy of Road from Ruin by uh, entering our auditorium and clicking on the link for that, and also encourage you to, to send questions. You know, Bretton Woods, for instance, followed an economic crisis. Um, it, it, it's almost as if if you, you take the patient to the emergency room um, as, it's about, as it's already died, um, are, are, is the Great Recession over? Is, is it enough of a crisis to, to really force some of the regulatory reform that, that you're suggesting? And, and who can really take the lead? Because as you have mentioned, often when it becomes political, sometimes the worst decisions are made. For me, you know, I think there's... A recession is over when the unemployment rate starts falling, and um, you know there's lots of technical definitions that economists have uh, by which you would say the recession has finished. You know the economy is clearly growing, but that's not growing in a way that's creating jobs enough jobs to bring the unemployment rate down at the moment. And a lot of that growth is the result of government spending, which. You know, I think you have to ask how sustainable that is because of the growing concern in the debt markets about uh, government deficits everywhere. Um, so, you know, I think there is a danger that, um, you know, even with the government expenditure that we see, that we've not really got much of a recovery going on, the recession is continuing, but that some of the political pressures may soon start to be to reduce government spending, in which case, there is a danger that we would have what they call a double-dip recession, that we're going to go back into into negative growth. Um, I worry that, um, but you know, my, my, my real concern is that Japan in the 1990s may be a model for what America is going to go through. I think there are lots of differences between, as we write in the book, between the American economy and the Japanese economy. America is much more entrepreneurial, uh, much more willing to let companies go bust than the Japanese were. But on the other hand, I think they're in both cases... Um, there's a real political difficulty in doing the tough reforms that are needed. And without those tough reforms, I think public confidence will remain low and there's a danger that unemployment remains high and that therefore the recession goes on and on and on and you could get through a whole decade without much growth and without much improvement in the job situation. One of the things, and granted I live in Texas, but I've noticed an increase in bumper stickers and blog postings questioning uh, the pre President Obama's commitment to capitalism um, do, do you think you know, the Obama administration is encouraging, discouraging, and, and perhaps even hindering capitalism, at least as, as we've known it? Well, I mean, I think my point in the book is that capitalism as we've known it ran into the uh, buffers, you know, basically went off the rails, um, to mix my metaphors. But um, no one in capitalism prior to September the 15th, 2008, when Lehman Brothers went bust, was talking about capitalism in which there was the role for, for the government would be to bail out the system and using trillions of dollars of taxpayers' money. So I think when that happened, uh, we had to actually recognize that that version of capitalism had failed and that we needed to improve capitalism. So the question is, is, is Obama and, and his team uh, asking for the right reforms? Are they, are they going to have the reforms they want to bring in going to produce that better capitalism or not. Um, and indeed, other critics of Obama are actually advocating the right sorts of reforms for capitalism. And I'm very struck by how a number of people, a number of reviews we've had on the right politically have kind of disagreed with our proposals to improve capitalism because they feel that capitalism was doing just great and should be allowed to muddle on. Well, I just think that's mad. Uh -huh. I mean, we have to improve capitalism, we have to make changes, we have to get the regulators doing their job properly, we have to actually get uh, the, the shareholders, the institutional shareholders operating uh, in our and their long-term best interest in their self-interest rather than um, behaving in this very short-termist way. So we need to improve the system. Now, I think there's a mixture, of, and it's a pretty mixed package that Obama is proposing. Some of the things he proposes, I think, are good. Um, 
you know, I do think we need a consumer protection agency. Um, I do think we need to um, have much uh, stronger voting rights for shareholders, that they should, shareholders should have a say on pay at the companies they invest in. I think we do need some kind of systemic risk regulator whose job it is to look at the economy as a whole, look at the financial system as a whole and say, you know, how much risk is there? Is it becoming dangerously risky? Is there too much leverage, too much debt in the system? I mean, those seem like useful innovations. On the other hand, I think his instincts, you know, seem often to be very anti-business. You know, he does talk about, um, but you don't, you don't sense a man who's ever really had to work for a private company and make profits and make a payroll. Why people in, yeah, make a payroll. I can see people in, why people in business find him difficult. And I, you know, I, I interviewed lots of chief executives. Um, in my job as the economist, and you know, it is clear that they feel that political risk is their number one risk at the moment. And you know, this is people who aren't partisan. It's not people who are kind of die-hard Tea Party Republicans. This is people who are just you know preoccupied with the job of running their businesses and making a profit and paying their staff, and would like to invest more in creating jobs, but worry that there's just going to be too much interference from government. And and you know, certainly you know you can understand where that's coming from. So. Um, I, I don't think that Obama is ideologically anti-capitalist. I just suspect that he doesn't have a, a natural pro-capitalism instinct. Um, but there's lots of people around him who are who understand what needs to be done. Um, I think they are constrained by some of the political pressures that they face. And I think you know we get the politicians that, that we deserve in some ways as a public. You know I think that there is massive financial and economic illiteracy in the population as a whole that we you know we don't actually ask the right questions of our politicians we encourage them when they do a lot of stupid things and we because it's that because it's easy and convenient for some of us but we don't actually demand that they you know put america back on a sustainable path fiscally you know, so we actually encourage them to spend more money even though we dislike it the consequences in terms of higher taxes. So I think we need to all accept some responsibility and to be, to be more intelligent in the demands we make of our politicians. David asks us, what about the government's involvement in the market? And he specifically narrows it down to Fannie and Freddie and multiple bipartisan efforts for reform. Yeah, I mean, I first wrote about Fannie and Freddie being a problem potentially back in the 1990s. And it's clear that you know, a lot of very smart people worried about Fannie and Freddie for a long time before they actually went bust and blew the system, helped blow the system up. So I remember talking to Alan Greenspan about this probably around 2000, 2001, and he was saying this is a real, real concern. Um, and there were attempts by, made by the Bush administration to actually uh, rein in Fannie and Freddie, uh, and those attempts were rebuffed by Congress. Now, I think Fannie and Freddie you know, are evidence of some of the real political problems that we have in terms of the amount of corruption there is in the system here that is the result of campaign money. So Fannie and Freddie were famous as being places where uh, a lot of the, there were a lot of jobs for Washington politicians and staffers that uh, were out of a job for a while. They could get a job at Fannie or Freddie and, uh, until they came around to getting back into office again a few years later. And they also paid massive amounts of uh, campaign finance contributions. And as you look at the people in charge of Washington at the moment, the people like Chris Todd, who are supposedly trying to clean house in the financial system, it turns out that they themselves um, had a preferred were, mortgage. You know, yeah. pretty much. Yeah, I mean, like, so, so, yeah, Chris Todd received a Friends of Angelo mortgage, which was the name that people gave to the head of Countrywide, uh, the mortgage company that did some of the worst subprime mortgages. Uh, Angelo Mozilla, the chief executive, had a lot of influential friends in Washington, and they got very good mortgages on very good terms that weren't available to the rest of us. So, you know, you've got to wonder about the capability of people who were that um, implicated in a way in the, in, the, in the bubble itself. You know, are they really going to be the people that we want to trust with cleaning house? Um, mm -hmm. And Obama even took some money off AIT, I think, at some point. And, uh, although he's no, I think you mentioned that or I read it was yeah. quite a bit of money. Mm. Over I mean, he was by no means, and by no means the most. I mean, I think he was more just typical of the average senator rather than one of the more egregious cases. But nonetheless, yeah. I think you look at Washington, and you've got to ask a question about a system in which so much money is flowing in from lobbyists um, to 
you know, to, to, that our politicians going to be taking decisions in the interest of the public when they are subject mm-hmm. to, to those kind of temptations. Well, let me ask you this, because we talked a little bit about President Obama's administration, but not just once, but in fact several times in, in, your, in your book, The Road from Ruin, you address the government's decision to let Lehman Brothers go under. In fact, you describe it as catastrophic, a catastrophic error, uh, former Treasury Secretary Paulson's biggest blunder, and then I was just looking through Richard Posner's new book, and he calls it as well a colossal blunder. Why do you feel so strongly about it? Obviously, you've really reported a lot on this. Tell us, you know, why, why did this happen? What, what's behind the scenes real story? Well, firstly, let, let's, let's be clear why I think it was such a catastrophic decision. I think if you look at history, um, not just in America but around the world, every time you let the banking system collapse, it has massively negative consequences. It's the worst possible economic policy that you can have is to let the banking system collapse because the banking system is so central to so many other economic activities. You know, we even today we talk about all the small businesses that can't get credit because um, because the financial system is still uh, troubled. Um, you know, you let the banking system fail and you have a nightmare. And it was very clear that Lehman, to me, that Lehman was absolutely uh, integral to the banking system. If you let Lehman Brothers go past, you would trigger a whole load of other bankruptcies, as indeed you know, was in the process of happening after Lehman Brothers was allowed to go past. So, you know, you, it, it, it was obvious to me that it was, it was a disastrous policy. And it was just as well that after they did make the mistake of letting Lehman Brothers go past, that the Republicans very quickly realized how catastrophically stupid that was and that they then bailed out the rest of the system. But, you know, I think had they not bailed the system out, the banking system out, we would be now looking at jobless rates of 20 to 25% and we probably would be, uh, would not have had any economic recovery at all. We'd still probably be, uh, you know, a lot poorer than we are today. So, um, and you can look back to the Great Depression in the 1930s in America and you can see when Andrew Mellon, the Treasury Secretary at the time, as the bank started to get into difficulties, said, you know, liquidate, 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 let them all go bust, and the result was the Great Depression. Um, so we avoided that in the end because, fortunately, as I said, the Republicans, after they made the mistake with Lehman Brothers, quickly realized that they had made a terrible mistake. But they should really, if they've had any, uh, taken any notes of history, they shouldn't have let Lehman fail. Now, I'm not justifying at all um, the kind of reckless management of the banks that, led them into difficulty in the first place. I think we do need to improve regulation and we need to get shareholders to take a greater interest in the behavior of the managers they hire to run their companies so that they don't take those kind of reckless risks and, and, and leave the taxpayer having to bail out the system. But I think once you do get into the mess, the worst thing you can do, that is the worst possible time to try to sort, to, to sort of uh, punish individual bankers, you've actually got to rescue the system. Now, I think Paulson may well, Hank Paulson, the Treasury Secretary at the time, may well have faced uh, massive political pressure from the Republicans at the start of the presidential election campaign uh, to uh, get tough with Wall Street and he also clearly felt that politically he didn't have the room to do a number of things that he thought were quite sensible because uh, it seemed anti-capitalistic or too big government to do that. As a result he may have felt that the only way that he could get the broader bailout that the system needed was to allow one firm to go fast and create a little mini crisis. Um, that seems a bit reckless to me, to say the least, but maybe that's what the politics of Washington requires. So, given that, what role does moral hazard really play in situations like this and for the government's decision? Well, moral hazard is this idea that the fact that people know the government is going to bail them out if they get into trouble means that they take bigger risks than they would do otherwise. And I think you've got to say that moral hazard is real. It's, a, it's definitely a fact of life that people know the government can't stand by and let the system fail, so they will be bailed out, and so they do, in some ways, take greater risks than they should do. Now, I think that's where the, the challenge of regulation is to say, well, how do we um, change the rules, change the incentives in the system to kind of lean against that tendency to take bigger risks? And so the key point is to address moral hazard before you get to a crisis rather than when you get to a crisis. We have a question from Mr. Shaw, and he says, could you comment on financial illiteracy in the media? In fact, you you have a, a good chapter about that in, in the book, uh, saying that media does not report adequately on economic and business matters. 
Um, what, what do you yeah, think I mean, the I think there's a huge. Pro- the, you know, the media, the media is increasingly important in a wo- in a world where information is money and information is power. And um, you know, I think the media's record, like everyone else in the system, was pretty poor during the past few years. I think too often the media is cheering the markets on the way up and panicking uh, on the way down. So it actually reinforces the public mood of at the moment rather than providing a sort of balancing contrarian view, which is what I think the media role should be. Now, you know, as economists, we over the years have pointed out a number of the problems in the system, although we didn't predict quite how badly things would get. And so I think we did a reasonable job. But I think um, overall, I think you know many other papers could say they did a reasonable job, but the, the overall effect of our coverage has not been good. And I think partly that has been because of some financial literacy. I think um, in the, let's say, the early part of the late 90s and the early part of this century, uh, a lot of uh, advertising for in newspapers came from the business community and from the housing market. And that tended to uh, maybe affect the some of the decisions that papers played about how, how much to uh, criticize the housing market boom and uh, and criticise the business community, and I think that that's one of the consequences of having advertising-funded media. Um, and we need to ask some hard questions about that. I also think, you know, one of the one of the recommendations that you get from economists that I think is right is that for ordinary people, playing the stock market is a dangerous game. That there's very few small savers that should really be prior time buying and selling shares. You're much better off buying a portfolio of uh, a some kind of portfolio of the market paying the same amount of money in each month and basically just letting the amount accumulate without looking at it and seeing what's going on and that you'll find 25 years later you won't have sold at the bottom of the market and you won't have bought at the top of the market you will have probably got a nice a nice nest egg and the trouble is that for channels like CNBC which basically glorify every movement in the market and glorify traders who are trying to beat the market all the time actually persuade people who really don't have the skills to uh, to trade shares uh, that they should be traders. And I think that has led to a lot of uh, people who um, have been managing their own retirement savings actually ending up with much smaller pot of money because they, they took reckless decisions. But, you know, CNBC gets a lot of advertising revenue and so it dominates the business coverage because it's got a big team of reporters and so forth. So, you know, I think we've... Uh, Whereas, whereas some of the some of the advice that I think people need to learn about how to manage their finances makes very dull uh, television, to say the least. I mean, right. you know, that's the thing. I mean, well, television and the media are trying to entertain as well as to inform, and you know, the most entertaining stuff is not necessarily the most informative and sensible stuff, and uh, that is a problem. And, and you've touched on advertising and so forth, but one of the things you mentioned in your book that I thought was interesting as well was the pressure to be the first to report and may, maybe uh, tell our listeners uh, about how the Wall Street Journal has changed and modified its its uh, reporting um, parameters. I mean, I think we would all recognize, you know, we're in a, we're in a much faster environment now. The people, you know, newspapers are in trouble because all their readers can now get the news on the Internet. And so... Why would they wait till the following morning to read it on print? Uh, and so one of the ways that newspapers are competing now is to try and be first with the news, to get uh, to get it out on their website quicker than anyone else, and then at least their readers know that they are the best, best uh, news hound, the best sleuth, they're getting the stories first. And one of the things, the Wall Street Journal used to have the reputation of being the most rigorous in its fact-checking and so forth, and... Um, you know, it often was quite late with the stories because it had spent so long uh, fact-checking them. But the fact is that people looked at the Wall Street Journal as the authoritative source, and so they didn't mind waiting a bit longer for it to come along. I think one of the uh, changes of the Wall Street Journal has been that they really want to be competitive in terms of being first with the news. Now, their editor has been very clear that he doesn't want there to be any sacrifice of quality in that. But I think... Um, Inevitably, there's certainly the pressure on journalists to be quick. It has risks, um, to say the least, that you may cut corners, not fact-check as well, and so forth. And there's a second set of issues, though, which is not just for... I mean, none of it is just for the Wall Street Journal. I think the Wall Street Journal 
I mention it because I think all media organizations are in the same boat, that there is pressure to be quick. But the other pressure is that you know, the growth of the Internet and the growth of all sorts of websites and bloggers who talk about financial issues has had a big effect on the traditional media that is that all sorts of rumors and stuff that we wouldn't publish in the past um, are now uh, reported in the blogosphere and mm -hmm. they start shaping the debate. And so you are presented with a real challenge as a journalist uh, in a mainstream traditional magazine or newspaper to say, well, everyone's talking about this rumor. We have no, you know, do we do we ignore the fact that they're talking about that? And if we come out with the same story later, having fact-checked it, you know, scrupulously, and we're just confirming what they've already got out in the blogosphere, don't we look rather slow and old and out of date? And so, again, there's a lot of pressure and a lot of difficult decisions to be made about how do we respond to stories that are going on and clearly being talked about but may not be, um, you know, published by responsible journalists doing the kind of fact-checking that has been the hallmark of great journalism over the years. All right. Before we move to many of the questions I've been receiving on Greece, and I do want to remind our listeners that we still have time to take your questions, and also you may purchase Road from Ruin on our on our site. And this is an unsolicited plug for, for Matthew's book, Essential Economics. I was doing some research on Matthew and saw that he wrote this book a few years ago. It's called Essential Economics, an A to Z Guide, uh, published uh, by The Economist. I ordered it this morning and, and looked forward to having it on my desk, uh, I guess, in a, in a few days. Um, we have a question from uh, the Minnesota Economic Club from Mark. Uh, what lessons does Greece hold for America? Well, um, you know, Greece is not America. Greece has been, I think, run in a fairly reckless way for some time. They've had uh, you know, big bloated public sector um, and government has been far too weak in standing up to the trade unions. Um, you know, America has had a balanced budget uh, as recently as 2000, and so you know its financial deterioration has been much more recent. And if you look at the rate of debt to GDP in America compared to, to Greece, America is nowhere near as troubled as Greece is. But there are still lessons for America. I met with. Uh, well, I was at a meeting with Peter Orsag, who is on the budget office, uh, the White House budget uh, chief, and um, right. he was saying, um, you know, I asked him the question, you know, at what point is he worried that China will stop buying American debt or that the ratings agencies might downgrade uh, the U.S. Uh, treasuries because of uh, America's fiscal deficit getting so large? And he said, well, he wasn't worried about it for this year. Um, and he didn't want to get into a debate about whether it would be two years or six years, but that clearly if America didn't start to reform its fiscal policy and actually get uh, the deficit down, that clearly there is a risk, and it will get greater over time, that uh, the markets will turn against America just as they have done against Greece. And so the question I have, and the question we address in the road from ruin, uh, talk about in the road from ruin is, you know, Clearly, you needed to stimulate the economy and bail out the banking system, but you've now, now you've done that emergency treatment, you need to switch to a very different set of policies, which is based on you know, prudent financial management of the economy. And my worry is that the politics at the moment in America make it very hard to do that. For example, there's no way with the Democrats looking at a heavy defeat in the midterm elections this year that they're going to be cutting public spending or putting taxes up this year. Uh, next year, if, if you imagine a situation where the Democrats have lost quite heavily, you may have had a change of control in the House. You know, that is not mm -hmm. an environment in which anyone's going to be taking brave, long-term reforming decisions uh, to sort out the American fiscal crisis. And so you could easily see uh, the Obama, the, the, the next presidential election also being, um, you know, a pressure to avoid hard questions. And then suddenly you're uh, four years along uh, and you haven't made any of the serious reforms that are needed, and then you are starting to worry about what the global markets will will say about America's fiscal crisis. Right. Paul Krugman, in fact, just today in the New York Times, has his piece, We're Not Greece, and one of the factors he, he mentions is how important it is to having your own currency, which, of course, we have here in the United States. He says having your own currency, it seems, makes a big difference. How do you see the euro evolving? Will it hold together? 
Well, I mean, I think that, let me deal firstly with America does have its own currency, but you know, I think having your own currency doesn't protect you in the long run. I mean, it gives you, particularly when you're in a reserve currency of the world like the dollar is, it gives you a bit more time. But I think fundamentally, um, people are, there, there will come a point where people will not buy your treasury bonds if they think you can't honor the commitment, and they certainly don't want to, even if they think you'll inflate the deficit away rather than defaulting on your debt. Um, that won't be an attractive investment. So I don't, I don't think that uh, the fact that the dollar is a reserve currency is a complete uh, get-out-of-jail card for America. I think it just buys them a bit more time. As for the euro, um, you know, I think this is going to be a really testing time for European polit- politicians and for the European Union and, and for the euro because um, there is going to be a lot of painful readjustment that's needed. I mean, countries like Greece, Italy, Spain, Ireland... Uh, Portugal, maybe even you know certainly, certainly within the European Union, and then within the Europe within the eurozone, and then Britain within the European Union, but outside the eurozone, are going to have to cut public spending significantly. And Germany and France, in particular, the, the wealthier economies of Europe, particularly Germany, may find that to ease the political pressure of that adjustment, they're going to have to make some large transfers of their wealth to those poorer countries, which is going to be extremely unpopular back home in Germany and France. And so how that politics plays out is is still unclear, but it it does suggest it's going to be quite a rocky ride. I think this may actually be the making of the euro in the long run, because I think it's very hard for the euro to break up. Uh, People are locked in by treaties um, and the political implications of leaving the euro or even talking about leaving the euro are potentially disastrous for an economy. That's the one thing that can make them worse than they are already, would be to say, we're going to leave the euro. And so at the end of the day, what may happen in five or ten years' time is once we come through this process, Greece and Spain and Italy and Portugal and Ireland will be much better run countries with a much less dangerous fiscal position. And um, overall, the European Union will have developed some of the federal system that you have here in America, where... Uh, wealth can be transferred by the federal government from richer parts of the country to poorer parts of the country. You'll have that within Europe, richer countries being able to transfer money through uh, to poorer countries to help them ease the adjustment to being more well-run. And so you may actually get a stronger, well, better-designed Europe that comes out of it, but it's going to be very much a political um, roller coaster in Europe for the next few years. And certainly, if I were an investor looking to put my money into Europe at the moment, I wouldn't want to invest in euros because I think it's going to be battered by the markets quite a lot. Yeah, I think you've touched on this. Maybe you can go a bit farther. Moss Fund and Top, one of our listeners says, how do you see the future strength of the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency and specifically its relative strength versus the euro? Um, in the book, we actually argue uh, that America needs to, we, the world needs to move away from America having the dollar as the reserve currency, that we need to have a new reserve currency uh, that better reflects uh, the fact that the world has a number of very big economies now and will have a, a growing number of big economies. It's not, it's not a world where America is the dominant economy anymore. And having the dollar as reserve currency is a source of instability. I mean, we've seen that in the past few years, uh, China and others have built up huge reserves of dollars, which they then lent back to America at very low rates, which has encouraged the reckless uh, uh, sort of uh, spending of money that's been borrowed that, 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 that's got America into, into its bubble. Um, and so in the long run, I think we need to move away from the dollar as a reserve currency. And that is only going to happen, I think, if America takes the lead uh, in, 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 or it's only going to happen in a good way if America takes the lead in bringing others like China to the table and, and redesigning the the system, including the organizations like the IMF and so forth. So what we argue for in the book is a, a new a Bretton Woods 2.0, a, a, an equivalent of what happened after the Second World War at Bretton Woods, where the Americans convened the victorious countries in the World War, in World War II to actually design the rules and institutions for the global economy in the second half of the 20th century. We need another one of those conferences to design and upgrade the system for the 21st century, including a, a new reserve currency. Um, in the meantime, though, America has, uh, is, is going to have uh, to deal with the fact the dollar is the reserve currency, and I think that has meant that the dollar has been strong as the crisis has got 
uh, last year, and that in some ways has made it harder for America because uh, one of the goal, one of the priorities that Mr. Obama has identified for America is to increase its exports as one strategy for returning to growth. And obviously, it's harder to increase your exports when your currency is strong. So, um, you know, ironically, the, the reserve currency status is really hurting America at the moment. When you look at the difficulty we've had for any reform for the United Nations, it seems like reforming the IMF or the World Bank may be equally as, as traumatic. Well, that's unfortunately uh, the problem we're in at the moment, is that um, the world has only really ever tackled some of these big international economic challenges and political challenges in the aftermath of a world war. And the only, so the Bretton Woods and what happened after the Second World War with where America really took this enlightened strategy towards the rest of the world, including the Marshall Plan of you know, funding the re re revival of some of the damaged war-torn economies. Um, it only ever happened after war, and attempts in previous periods in history to, to bring the great powers of the world together to introduce global economic reforms have all failed. And so I think we shouldn't underestimate the challenge that America faces, that the world faces in in, in improving its governance in the 21st century. This is why I argue in the book that we really, this is a moment where America needs to get in touch with that same spirit of enlightened self-interest that guided it after the Second World War. But at that point, it understood that its own future was best secured by encouraging the rest of the world uh, to get out of the mess of the war, to get back on its feet and to start growing economically again, and so America took the lead in rebuilding the world economy. And well, Let me throw this at you, if I may. Frank just sent this question in. Do we need to fix the U.S. system to make it more like the British parliamentary system to make tough, long-term decisions? Particularly interesting, given what happened in the U.K. this past week. Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, honestly, I don't see, um, I don't see uh, America reforming itself along British lines, I think. You, know, you had a revolution, revolution <laughs> for that. Uh, that dealt with that question to some extent, but um, I I think that the the problems around uh, Congress, can, firstly, are to my mind the role of um, corporate financial donations, lobbying, and so forth that the Supreme Court has recently actually made easier to do, and I think that does that is a form of corruption of, of your politicians here in America. And I do think we need to, the public needs to understand that. I mean, one of the things that I'd love to see uh, is, you know, you know now, if you watch the NBC, people, talk, people talking about proposing particular shares as a good buy, they have to identify whether they have a position in those shares already. I'd like to see every time a politician appears on television that, that CNN or Fox News runs a ticker tape underneath saying this politician has received this amount of money from these following... <laughs> uh, corporate donations. I think that might generate some public debate that we need to have. But the other issue also is that I think there is, as I talked about earlier, this problem of financial literacy. It's not just that people, you know, don't understand how to run their bank accounts and things of that kind, which is often what people mean by financial literacy. I think financial literacy is a crisis of democracy that you have. Um, it's impossible to have an intelligent conversation about economics or about financial reform or about what to do about the deficit here because the public wants this um, kind of fantasy uh, where they can have more and more things from government but don't have to pay for it. And, uh, and we've grown accustomed to that. And we've grown accustomed to it. And I, you know, I would love to see every congressman, before they can uh, take up office, have to pass a test on basic economic and financial facts and, and so forth. And uh, I'd love to see the same apply to people who go on the boards of, of directors of companies as well, because I think there is, it's not just poor people or school children that need to improve their financial literacy. I think it's all of us. Um, you know, and journalists maybe ought to take the test as well. I'm not exempting anybody. And I think if we, if we understand that, that, that democracy is in danger of not functioning because we don't understand and take seriously financial literacy, that people need to learn the language of money uh, if they're going to be effective citizens. And I think that that should be one of the crusades that our political system needs to, to, to lead so that we can actually have a more informed and more effective democracy. I mean, it worries me enormously that people say China, uh, which is a you know, 
a regime that is undemocratic with terrible human rights abuses, that China might be better at tackling the big challenges that the world faces uh, economically than uh, than America, which is the, the land of the free and the, the home of democracy. So it's it's we need to make democracy work properly, and I think addressing our economic ignorance is, is, is crucial for that. Now we have only about 15 minutes left, and I have a number of questions. I want to thank our listeners from across the, the country for sending them in. Let me just shoot some of these at you, because I also want to be sure that we have time to talk about uh, philanthrocapitalism and some of your thoughts there. So let me just uh, ask you a few quick questions. Uh, Frank asks, will we have high inflation in the United States soon? Um, you know, I don't think we're going to see high inflation in America soon. I think when the economy is unable to generate job growth, um, it's unlikely to generate uh, inflation. I don't think we're going to get back to the kind of stagflation that we had in the 1970s, but I think it's more to do with um, you know, oil price uh, you know, sort of push factors in the economy rather than um, fundamental uh, economic sort of uh, fundamental trends. And I, so I don't think we're going to see inflation anytime soon. I think what I worry about is that, um, you know, as uh, the government has to, you know, it gets more and more deeper in debt, that increasingly there's political pressure built up to uh, reduce the real value of that debt by inflation, by inflating where we're printing money and so forth. And, um, Peter Olzak, the White House budget chief, you know, he says there's zero risk that the Federal Reserve would allow that kind of inflationary policy to happen. I'm perhaps slightly less certain that the institution of the Fed is strong enough to resist that kind of political pressure. And so I do worry that we could see in the longer term, if the fiscal crisis isn't addressed, that uh, the political pressure to inflate gets so strong that, we, that it does happen. I still don't think, I still don't really think it's very likely that we're going to return to the kind of sort of high levels of inflation we saw in the 70s, but, um, but certainly we could see much higher rates of inflation than we've been used to in the past, not immediately, but say in three or four years' time if things aren't done to sort out the deficit. Michael asks, given the recent housing bubble and the 2008-2009 stock market debacle, do you see markets as efficient or fundamentally flawed? Um, you know, I think the, 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 one of the themes that we have in the book is that uh, ideas matter, and one of the ideas that was dominant in the markets and in the politics, the political discussion of the uh, past 20 years was that markets were very efficient, uh, that all you really needed to know was the current price uh, of a share or of a house, and that told you everything. Uh, you need to know, and I think what we've discovered is that although markets are tremendously positive in many ways in moving money around and getting money to the right people and in, uh, in, in, in uncovering all sorts of information about value, that they're not perfect, and that in certain circumstances, um, prices, the current price, can be wildly misleading about the real value of an asset. And so I think we need to... Um, improve our, you know, you touch and tap into a whole school of economics that's known as behavioral economics and institutional economics uh, that is much more nuanced in how it views markets. It understands that markets are a tremendous positive force, but also that they can go, uh, go wildly wrong in certain circumstances. And to figure out policies that um, tame those tendencies to go out of control, that lean against the wind when a bubble is, is, is forming. Um, my, the goal of that would be to help markets function more effectively and more efficiently, not to reduce the role of markets, as I think some people would like to do. Alan asked, which of the new banking regulations do you consider wise? Well, I, as I say, I, I would like to see a consumer protection agency. I think that's, that would be very important. Um, however, I worry that... Currently, the proposal is to put that consumer protection agency within the Federal Reserve, and the Federal Reserve already had lots of powers to protect consumers, which it didn't use before. So um, there's a danger there that it either will be ineffective or, as other people worry, that it will be too intrusive. Um, I like the idea that um, 
you know, we have a systemic regulator that someone that there are, there is a rather than having the current system where it isn't clear that anybody has uh, a responsibility for overseeing the overall level of risk in the financial system, and that there will be some kind of institution set up that is supposed to say, well, how much risk is out there? What kind of risks are we taking as a society and financially, and how do we, you know, and to warn against it getting uh, wildly uh, risky. So um, what's being proposed is not again not perfect, but is better than nothing. I think also the fact that we're recognising that um, all financial uh, institutions that have reached a significant size, whether they be traditional banks or hedge funds or whatever, you know, should be under the same oversight framework. Uh, that is very sensible. I mean, doesn't, there's no reason to me why. Um, institutions that are fundamentally doing the same thing as each other but have different names or different legal bases you know, should be regulated differently to each other. I think you should have a consistency between uh, the different financial players out there. So some of that is in the legislation. I like the fact that there's going to be a, there's a proposal for shareholders to have a say on pay. Uh, they actually get to vote on whether they, I mean it's advisory vote on whether the pay to the top executives is, is, is the right package. I like the idea that um, they're trying to make the uh, election of boards of directors much more competitive by making it easier for shareholders to um, to vote off directors that aren't doing a good job and to propose their own candidates. Now these are the changes that are going to be really fiercely opposed by the business lobby, uh, but I hope will make it onto the statutes because I think one of the challenges that I've said that we need and we write about in the book is we need our shareholders. Uh, particularly the institutions that are investing in retirement money to actually take an active role in making sure that the people who are on board the directors are the right people and they're doing a good job in holding uh, management to account. And I, I should mention in, in The Road from Ruin, the book is in two parts. Part one, The Road to Ruin, How Things Go Wrong, and then part two, The Road from Ruin. And, and that's where you and your co-author, Michael Green, talk about philanthrocapitalism. What do you mean by this? Well, we wrote a, a first book about philanthropy, called Philanthrocapitalism, which came out about a couple of years ago, which is really saying that um, within that, that maybe there's a battle going on for the soul of capitalism. That, that people have traditionally thought there was just one type of capitalism, which is all about greed and uh, uh, wealth creation, but with no sort of interest in, in making society better. And then there's this new version, which I guess I would associate with people like Bill Gates or Jeff Immelt at GE, um, Warren Buffett, um, George Soros, and Michael Bloomberg, people like that, where successful business people are saying, actually, we want to put our wealth to work in building a better society. And in fact, in some cases, we want to actually uh, make our companies um, work more in the interest of improving society. And so... Philanthrocapitalism is what we call uh, uh, the coming together of um, capitalism with improving society. In some cases, it's through philanthropy that uses business methods to um, make the giving really effective, which is what I think Bill Gates and Michael Bloomberg are great at. And in some cases, it's about um, companies like Walmart, GE, actually doing saying, well, we can play a big part in improving our environment and tackling climate change and at the same time by doing so make bigger profits for ourselves so we can do well by doing good. Um, and so all around society I think you see this coming together of the head and the heart uh, of business methods and social mission and I think it provides an important way ahead for capitalism particularly after this crisis. You know you look at a company like Goldman Sachs and the way what was regarded as one of the most admired companies in America has now become one of the most hated companies in America. And I think it's because it hasn't uh, recognized that it needs to talk more about its social mission and to act in ways that show the public that it's not just out for itself, but is out to make the society better. And I think a lot of businesses you know, should look to the example of Goldman Sachs and the problem it's having, having at the moment and say, well, how do we get on the side and, and of progress and, and show the public that we're not just in it for ourselves, but we are in it for, uh, for the good of us all. So you change in some way the way business is viewed? Uh, is, it, is business a profession? 
Well, I think, you know, one of the things that we, we write about in the book is that these uh, MBA students at Harvard are now starting to take an oath where they pledge you know, that they won't be just out for themselves, but they will take into account and be responsible for uh, society and the stakeholders in the company and so forth. And although that's on itself you know, not going to save the world, it's, um, I think it's a step in the right direction towards saying people who are in positions of responsibility of, in business actually do have a duty to the broader public to make sure that they... Um, you know that their decisions are not just for themselves in the short term, but are in the best interest of uh, long-term performance. Um, and I think as you do make the system more long-term, the kind of people who you would put in positions of leadership are people who are people of integrity, who do think about society and the world we live in, who do understand which way the wind is blowing, and are capable of motivating an organisation to. Um, to, to perform well and in a constructive way in that building of a better world that we all want to live in. Um, and so I think we will, if we can make the system operate in a more long-term way, if we can get our institutional shareholders demanding long-term performance rather than short-term performance, then we will also see a revolution in the leadership of business, uh, which is much needed so that people who we admire uh, for their integrity and their character are actually running our companies again rather than people who when you look at them, actually, they're pretty unimpressive in terms of their personal character and integrity. How might you adjust the curriculum of some of the business schools to reflect what you're advocating? Well, I do think that, I mean, a lot of business schools are uh, engaging quite a lot of soul-searching, and I certainly think that, um, you know, the, 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 the slavish adherence to efficient market theory and so forth, and the, uh, the idea that humans are just simply motivated by money. It needs to be um, tempered by a realization that actually the world has changed, that people in a world that gets richer, people want more and more things that make them fulfilled that aren't just about money, but that are about doing the right thing and feeling that they are making a positive difference. Um, and I think business schools you know, need to figure out how to build that into their curriculum. Now, this goes totally against, I think, what we've just been talking about for the last two minutes, but we'll make it the last last question, and it's from Brian. And he says, are you bullish or bearish in short term or medium term? And I guess um, what we're talking about is just overall economy. And, and Well, I'm, you know, I'm naturally an optimist. I do believe that if you look at the history of America in particular, it's had crises of capitalism before, and it's figured out how to... Um, how to improve its system. Now, sometimes it's done it quickly and sometimes it's done it slowly. My fear is that in the short term it's, going to, it's not going to happen quickly. And, you know, I think we may have a difficult decade ahead for America, but I think in the long run um, America will sort out its problems. And I think the good news is that there are many other trends out there in the world that are extremely positive for uh, wealth creation and for making... Uh, the world a better place, I think, from the fact that so many technology revolutions are happening, that we're making progress on biotech and health. We may all live a lot longer. We may remain active and healthy a lot longer. You know, I think the fact that China and India are coming out of being terribly run economies into being quite well-run economies and are generating wealth and bringing hundreds of millions of people out of poverty is a very good thing. So, you know, I think all those factors in the long run make me bullish, but in the short term I'm fearful that because people are ignoring the sorts of recommendations we're making in the book, uh, that we may actually take longer to recover than, than we need to. Well, as we come to a, a close, let's hope that your long-term prognosis is the right one. Uh, Matthew, I want to thank you so much for being with us, and I hope our listeners uh, heard and, and how excited I was about this book. I really want to recommend The Road from Ruin. I, I spent all last Sunday reading it, and uh, I really encourage you to, to read it carefully. As I mentioned, it's now available uh, through our website on the Auditorium for Global IQ. Matthew, we have a large stack of questions. I had many more, and I, I hope you'll come back. Uh, I want to, I'd love to. Uh, thank you very much for having me. And, uh... As I say, if you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter at uh, Matt Bish, M-A-T-T-B-I-S-H, as well as uh, obviously writing in The Economist, and we have a website that talks about The Road from Ruin as well, which is www.theroadfromruin.com.
Well, we'll be sure to put a link up on our website and encourage others to do the same. And I want to remind our audience, if you're all not already a subscriber to The Economist, please go today to economist.com to start your subscription. Global IQ is a presentation of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth in association with The Economist. Today's broadcast was generously supported by Texas Capital and Club Corps. Special thanks also to the World Affairs Councils of America. Stay tuned for more information regarding our next audio cast in June. And if you have colleagues or friends who couldn't join us today, why don't you send them to our media tab at dfwworld.org for a recording of this program. And remember, together the Economist and the World Affairs Council put you on top of the world.